What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you, baby, that brown liquor make my heart go quicker. Welcome to the Leisure Class. I'm your host, Jack Song. A podcast dedicated to turning you on to the good stuff. A gathering place for the many kindred spirits I am grateful to call friends. Musicians, writers, artists, chefs, cocktail wizards, and wine geeks. All members of the Leisure Class. It's nighttime here in Taylor, Mississippi. Population 343 and me. And when I tell you it is quiet here, friends, it is country quiet. The only sounds I might hear are the occasional barking dog from somewhere off in the distance. Sounds can trigger memories and invoke a time and place in our lives. Just like the smell from a kitchen can bring back vivid childhood memories of your mother's home cooking, a few notes from a favorite song will bring back memories and also give rise to the emotional connection. The feelings we experienced are rekindled. As a young musician, I was addicted to vinyl. I spent every penny I made from my paper route on album after album after album that I scoured in the hi-fi section of the local Sears store. In my high school years, I took jobs in music stores and basically took my salary in vinyl. My collections stretched along the four walls of my bedroom. But over time, through many moves and the changing technology, I left vinyl behind. I sold my entire collection switching first to CDs, replacing all the albums that I had bought with CDs. And then, as streaming services started and other moves, I sold that large collection. Music is always playing in my house. Even while writing, I will listen to instrumental music in the background, because anything with vocals and lyrics is a bit too distracting. I came to realize that music, which was so important to me, had receded from the vaunted place it held front of mind and moved to the background. I realized I really wasn't listening to the music in the same attentive, critical way I had for so many years. You remember the scene in Almost Famous? when young William's older sister, Anita, leaves home to join the scene in San Francisco. She tells him she left something behind for him. In that scene, when William finds the box filled with albums and he starts flipping through them, it was like watching myself flip through my own collection I had at that age. 
and in the theater as an adult, alone in the dark, I was overcome with emotion and started to cry. This was the year 2000, and I was at a very pivotal time in my life, which I detailed in episode three, so I won't repeat it here, but I was about to begin a very nomadic lifestyle for over a decade, and I divested myself of any belongings that would not fit in my car. But I made a promise to myself that day in that movie theater that when I land somewhere, I will have a kick-ass stereo set up again. So when I moved to Taylor, was able to assemble a new stereo system, I bought a turntable and returned to vinyl. It's in these quiet evenings that I can sit dead center between my speakers, sipping my favorite cocktail, and through sound, do some time travel. This sound is the key to opening the portal of time-space continuum. I immerse myself in the listening experience, revisiting my favorite albums, and not only listening, but as I did as a young musician, holding the album cover in my hand, reading the liner notes, and studying the credits. I wanted to know who played what instrument, who was the producer, the songwriters, down to the last details, like what recording studio was used. These were important facts to me then, like searching for secrets in the Rosetta Stone. I was convinced that knowing these details lay the path forward to my becoming a rock star. Like studying anything, you begin to find threads and commonalities in the music that you're attracted to. A favorite guitar player showing up on different albums with different bands. My guest today is a name that I came across time and time and time again reading album liner notes and credits on some of my favorite records. Harvey Brooks is a true legend. His bass playing can be heard on the iconic recordings Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited, Miles Davis's Bitches Brew, The Doors' Soft Parade, along with dozens and dozens of other recordings of the 60s and 70s. In his book, View from the Bottom, he recounts his truly amazing career and begins with a humble statement, quote, I was at the right place at the right time. Harvey, thanks for joining the leisure class today. Glad to be here. I do have a question about your upbringing. You started your musical career in high school, and you attended this wild high school in Queens called Van Buren High School. Some of the people that graduated there Madeline Kahn, the great actress, Ray Kurzweil, inventor of electric keyboards, John Bauman, better known as Bowser from Sha Na Na. What is it about that high school at that time that was a fertile ground for so much talent? I have to say, there was really nothing special about Van Buren High, except I think it was a matter of timing. My family moved out from under the 59th Street Bridge in Long Island City out to the country, surrounded by trees and woods. To me, it was like the amazing country. Van Buren was just a big lot at that time. And then the high school was built. 
And in that time, 1950s, 1960s, you know, following World War II, we were living off the booty, you know, and the country was thriving, and it was a, a lot of amazing opportunities to be creative or to be uh, whatever. Uh, and, and Queens brought a lot of, in that area, a, a lot of similar kinds of people. I mean, I was in a Jewish home place. I mean, for Jewish war veterans. So I guess, I guess it was just something in the water, you know? <laughs> My father had a 54 Chrysler when I graduated high school, when I started to play gigs. So I was playing six nights a week, you know, and, and he wasn't happy about giving me the keys all the time, but my actual involvement in in the music field was with Al Cooper, who kind of like brought me along. When when his bass player went to uh, dental school, uh, he recommended me because he was a neighbor, you know, in Queens there. And, and I was living across the street from Van Buren High School. So he had uh, brought me in, uh, uh, started me off and got me the Dylan game. Uh, because as he says, I got him a gig at the World's Fair. And so he was paying me back. That's that's what the story is there. That's what true friends do. And that was, a, you know, and, and so it went on. Uh, and after after Dylan, and I had a, a reputation and opportunities and uh, being at the right place at the right time, a few occasions there, I met Howard Solomon at the Cafe of Gogo, uh, seeing some jazz shows, and I talked to him. I came into him and I said, well, look, you know, I, I just finished some stuff with Bob Dylan and, you know, I'm looking to, you know, get involved and get some gigs or, or do some playing here. And, and he said, well, you know, just come down. And I started doing that. And I, you know, ran to Richie Havens, a lot of the really good folk people and, and some of the rock and roll bands and uh, the Fugs and all this strange, you know, concoction of music, you know, had me between that and playing a lot of rhythm and blues I had toured with a band called The Exciters, a vocal group called The Exciters, who had a hit uh, called Tell Him. Their manager uh, heard me, and I think with Cooper also, hired me to go out on the road with The Exciters, which is my first real tour in a car in the winter up the East Coast in the blizzards and in the snow. It was fantastic. <laughs> right. you, know, and, you know, and it was all cold motels and, and uh, funky food. How old but were you? Was, How old were you at that time? I think I was nineteen. <laughs> That's perfect. Can you tell me about Jimi Hendrix and your experiences with him? Not mainly the Cafe of Gogo. He would do Jimmy James and the Flames. You know, he would do his band. Mm-hmm. But Jimmy was just around town, you know, and like we'd hang out at the Kettle of Fish or across the street from the uh, Gogo. Jimmy, he had it all together. He was the first guy that connected the sound, you know, what made Jimmy happen was that it was like the sound would come through his guitar and with his hands, he found ways just to, to make the thing come alive. You know, and he was really the top of his game at doing that. And, um, you know, and, and we did a lot of jamming, a lot of hanging out, a lot of drinking. Are there any recordings from any of those jams or... There's a couple of, of them that are very popular on the on the web. Uh, there's one, I think, with uh, Bunny Miles and myself, and there's one at the scene uptown mm-hmm. and one at the Cafe of Gogo, which are, are the, the main recordings, are, which were, you know, they don't sound that great because of the uh, technology, 
But the one at, at the scene, Steve Paul's the scene, mm-hmm. uh, has got um, Jim Morrison on the, on the set. Buddy Miles, Jim Morrison, Hendrix, and myself, and I think Rick Derringer huh. something. We had come from my friend's loft down in uh, Soho, which wasn't Soho at the time. Right. And uh, we went up there, and, and Jimmy was out of his mind. <laughs> he was down on the floor groveling. I mean, it was, you know, it was really bizarre. He had done that to me once before uh, in, in Los Angeles at the Cheetah. First time I met him and where I actually met the doors was Jimmy came on stage and he was licking my sandals. <laughs> it was the weirdest, the weirdest thing, you know, and I said, Did that, was that really happening? Am I just making up a story? And it really did happen. That is the best. <laughs> and, and I can't figure out. We, we had a friendship that's <laughs> didn't go any further than that. Uh, and I almost had a deal for him. I go backstage and I said, Jimmy, this guy loves you. He wants you to record for Verve Folkways. And Jimmy says, well, I just signed with uh, Chess Chandler from uh, The Animals. Yeah. And I'm going to England. And I said, oh, really? <laughs> but that was it, you know, and it was great for him because he went there. And they appreciated who he was, you know, because in the village he was Jimmy, you know, he was Jimmy James, and and everybody he was local, right? Got to get out of local, you know, to make that transition, and he did, you know, and and the kind of band they put together worked for sure. I mean, it was a very different rhythm section than what he ended up with in Band of Gypsies, which um, <laughs> I would have thought you would have been a perfect bass player for him, you know. Well, here's the story about that. Okay. I was at Columbia, uh, I was producing, I'm in the mix room, you know, and I walk out, I'm taking a break, and I smell some weed burning, you know, and, and then I and, and some incense. And Jimmy was in one of the small mix rooms doing some mix on something he was doing. And uh, so I went over there, I said the door was open, and we started talking, and we were talking about when he came back from the fateful trip, at that time, we were going to get together with Miles, Buddy Miles, and myself. And oh, man. we were going to do this thing. And, uh, well, we never got there. Man. All these amazing people that you've played with and outline in your book, which I think the, the book really reads so naturally like a great conversation just sitting around talking to you. It's a, it, your, uh, your natural voice yeah. comes through, and it's really... Exciting to take this ride with you. I wanted to ask about playing with Dylan, uh, not only in the recording, but you played with him live at a time when he was pissing a lot of people off. I had read somewhere where Levon Helm left touring with him at that time because he was so upset at the sort of rancor and just bad vibes that people were giving Dylan at the time in the band. What was your experience with the audience in that very pivotal moment with him? Okay, so we, we, we did the album. We did Forest Hills, and he almost got knocked over when the people charged the stage. And then same thing with Cooper. But the thing was, it was an incredible event. you know, And that the people would get that passionate mm-hmm. over something like the way somebody wanted to do what they owned and did you know it was a kind of interesting that you know 
these were the purists. Right. Well, so be it. By the end of it, you know, like by the time we played with like a Rolling Stone, it was okay. But it was, <laughs> but during the stuff they had, they they loved the opening part of the of the show when he was playing acoustic. Right. And then for the rest of the band, they were not happy. And then towards the end, you know, we, we finally got him. Another parallel, you know, between being there at that time with Dylan and then being with Miles and recording Bitches Brew and Big Fun, which Big Fun's a, a fave of mine for sure, along with so many others. But it really pissed a lot of people off. Bitches Brew was for the purists who had been following Miles and wanted him to remain the Miles Davis that they wanted. Man, the critics hated that stuff, I believe, from that, that oh, yeah. time. Yeah. You know? Miles, his whole point was, look, I have played every standard. I have given you versions of them. I'm done. I mean, I got nothing else to say about this stuff. Don't you get it? Yeah. But they're also selfish because they want it just the way they want it forever. Well, you know, now the guy's dead. So now you got it. This is what you got. Right. Um, the, the bitches brew thing was, you know, e- extraordinary. And I got the, I got the gig from Tio who had me go down and do a demo uh, uh, for Betty, Miles' wife. And I met all the guys. And, you know, at the end of the thing, Miles invited me to come back. And I said, talk to T.O. We're going to do some stuff. And it opened my head wide open. Because, you know, hey, what this is is the whole thing about which I finally understood and I'm still working on. The, the whole thing about playing spontaneous music is that you listen to everybody and you add to it. You don't ignore everybody and try and make them follow you. You all exchange constantly. And that's kind of what, you know, what that was. You know, like, oh, this is, this is going to be a C. This is a C tone. This is what the song is. And the interesting thing was that uh, when Columbia, one of the reissues was putting all the edits back in. Now, Half of the art of that record is the editing. Right. It's really what makes it palatable. It's very creative without it, but it's palatable. The editing made that really function. And it, it was amazing. And uh, Tio went nuts. I think it killed him. I'm not sure. I sort of got the idea of, of what it takes to be a master. you know. And to be a master of the instrument, you have to be able to just express yourself without having the instrument get in the way. And, and the, uh, you know, he said, look, nothing to worry about. We're just going to play. You know, Miles said to me, you know, he wanted me to be in the bottom. So I was going to be in the bottom and Dave was going to, any, any, any corners, he was going to pick them up. You know, I was going to just put out the big basketballs and, and stuff like that, and just, you know, lay down the bottom. And it worked great, yeah. you know, and uh, it, was, it was very warm, and uh, it was great. It's that communication thing that you talk about when an artist like Miles, or Dylan, right, because a lot of those sessions didn't have real structure to them. He's, you know, pretty, yeah, kind of follow me along and see where it goes. The great thing about Dylan is he writes great songs. Right. Not only are the lyrics brilliant, but the music 
makes a lot of sense. Even though it's simple, it really makes a lot of sense. And uh, you know, my whole point of view is because I wanted to be there the same time he was there. Like when he got it, that was a struggle. It was like to get it together as much as you can so that when he goes, well, that that's the performance for me, and that's the record. You know, that's right. what it was. And so if you were there, you're looking good. If you weren't, uh, make it a little lower, will you? <laughs> <laughs> right, I was wondering if you could tell us about your fundamental philosophy of playing bass and advice um, you would give to, you know, other bass players. Well, the thing about the bass for me, as I, I started out as a guitar player, and that's one kind of thinking. And I was in a band with two guitars, drums, and saxophone. And we had a manager who was using us for his political uh, benefits, which we didn't really understand because we were kids. And then he said, you know, they're making electric basses now, and you should have a bass in the band. And you should play the bass, talking to me, because he's a more experienced guitar player. Okay. So I got the bass. And then as I'm playing it, I'm beginning to understand some stuff. And I'm finding these like, oh, this is really cool. You know, all this stuff is going on. And all I have to do is put this note down one, and I can change everything. You know, and I can affect it with a rhythm. I can put these little things in. And so I got inside of the, the, the fun of the instrument. And uh, I, I had been listening to, to guys like Ron Carter and, and uh, uh, people of that things and Paul McCartney on that side and listen to all these things, R&B, Wilson Pickett, and I'm listening and I'm, I'm building a vocabulary and uh, this was a world of bass for me. And the thing uh, that I really uh, discovered was that it's a lot of fun to get into a pocket, to get into a groove and control it. It's a powerful thing. You can control that groove. And you can also then give it up. Right. You know, you can give it up, you can control it, you can change it. And, and I'm only playing one note, you know, at a time, sometimes more. But most of the time, I'm playing lines that lead somewhere. And so I'm taking it up the road and over the bridge and, you know, across yeah. the pond. You know? and, and that's the kind of thing you can do because you're not so involved in spelling everything out and you know the, although I uh, to this day wish I could play and sing at the same time that's a tough one man I've had to learn tough. that too it's and tough I really I really give it up to those guys it's great being a bass player because you get to be very specific and you get to change and make creative things happen from the bottom up absolutely I think it's you know in in a lot of ways not only is it the foundation but it's also the glue between the drums and the song. Right? Without a doubt. Another great bass player said, Larry Graham, I'm going to add some bottom so the dancers just won't hide. This has really been fun, man. I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join the leisure class today and, and chat about this. You are welcome anytime you want to jump in and you know have a conversation, maybe join... Maybe we'll get a bass player roundtable together with some some other cats, and, and we can have some fun talking. That would be Let's great. Check it out. View from the bottom. Harvey's book is available at Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and your favorite bookseller. 
Elegant Geezer, his music project is available at CD Baby and also your favorite streaming services. Check it out. I'm your host, Jack Sonny, and you're listening to The Leisure Class, brought to you by Newsweek. Well, it's time for the segment we call Shake It Up, our deep dive into the science, inspiration, and artistry in the making of creative craft cocktails. My co-host is Brad Johnson, a musician friend of mine with a shared passion for the good stuff, and who is a cocktail wizard, a true star behind the bar. Hey, Brad, what we shaking up today? Well, Jack, I got another classic for you. Okay. The martini. You like martinis? Oh, yeah. It's a controversial cocktail. I know that. There's so many variations, and and I'm hoping that you'll dive into some of that and set the record straight. Yeah, man. So, all right. The martini is a quintessential classic cocktail, which on the surface is an easy cocktail to make. However, this is a delicate cocktail to make, and the variations are quite extensive, as, as you alluded to. And they're not easy to get right, which is another reason why we love it. Right. But here's why it's simple. You got gin, you got dry vermouth, stirred or or shaken. There's where a little bit of that controversy comes in. I'm right. going with stirred. Okay. We'll get to that in a bit. And then you garnish with a, a classic olive, or it could be a citrus twist of your choice. You could go with lemon, you could go with orange, you could go with your favorite, a ruby red grapefruit. Right. You could go with lime. And each one of those is going to gently alter the flavor profile of that a little. Or what about a small pickled onion, a Gibson, right? right? I mean, now now, just those few ingredients right there have now altered the profile of gin and dry vermouth, right? Yeah, but the pickled onion, is that what makes it a Gibson? Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. It's the same thing, but you get like those little briny ingredients in there because, because we're dealing with just a few ounces it will alter the flavor profile. And so that's kind of why this is a difficult drink because it is actually a delicate drink. People think, I ah, just throw some gin in there and, and wave. They used to say this, wave, wave the bottle of vermouth over the top. Classic martini is gin. Like when you order a martini, the assumption is the bartender is going to make it with gin. You have to uh, yes. specify... And we'll get in, I'm sure you're going to get into that. A vodka martini, which is entirely different. But That's gin, correct. the essences that are all of the herbal notes that are in the various gins, which are widely varying. Vast and varied, yep. Has to contrast and, and echo these little elements that you're talking about adding. Whether it's um, an olive, the brininess of an olive, the citrus mm-hmm. notes of lemon or lemon yep. twist. Anyhow, continue, my brother. You're absolutely right. The The type of gin that you prefer with it will alter the flavor profile along with those garnishes. Um, so, you know, before we get in, let's, let's level set here. Okay. okay. The classic recipe, classic recipe is two and a half ounces of gin, 
a half ounce of dry vermouth, and, and people argue with me over this. This is, again, why this is kind of controversial, but the classic recipe. Stir it over ice, strain into a chilled martini glass, and garnish. If you want it drier, you can reduce the amount of vermouth from a half ounce to a quarter ounce, and then add another quarter ounce into your gin, you know, so you, you come out with the, the same amount of, of cocktail um, and balance out that ratio. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky, right? Now, here's, this, is, this is why ice matters, <laughs> is because the key to getting this right is all about science, baby. It's Absolutely. all about it's all about dilution, right? Because if you just if you take if you take spirits and put them together in a glass, okay, that's that's not exactly a cocktail. There's when you add the ice to it, the ice element will dilute it and give that cocktail the the cohesion that it needs to be, you know, delightful to the palate. In many ways that's a binding agent. It does. It does act as a binding agent. Yep. Okay. So, when done properly, you should stir this until it's cold enough to where the dilution has the cohesion of flavors and they're all working together. The proper way of doing it, and, and again, this is also arguable, and people people have different tastes. But the way I like it, I got my mixing glass, pour the ingredients into the mixing glass, and I use one-inch cubes, right? Because you got a, a, a bit of a wider surface to liquid ratio going on with the wider cubes, but they're small enough to where you're going to get that proper dilution. If you use a big old rock or something like that, it's you're, you're not going to get the proper dilution. Okay, I can see um, and it's going to take a little bit longer to, to, to cool it down, you know, to get it to the proper temperature because we want these things served ice cold. And so that's, there's a balance between getting it to the proper temperature and having that proper amount of dilution. And so I think that those, those one inch cubes work properly. Stir it for 20 seconds. You got the proper dilution. It's at the proper temperature. You strain and pour into your chilled, again, important, chilled martini glass, and you garnish. What I'm drinking today, I'm garnishing with a lemon peel, and you express the oils over the top. I rub a little bit around the side, and voila, there you go. It's beautiful. It's it's light. It's 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 somewhat delicate. And it's delicious. Classic, classic martini. That's it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. This is Jack Sonny, your host, saying thanks for listening. Stay safe, be kind, and always remember, hug them while you can. See you next time.